You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. And this is CJ Wolf with Healthicity, and I have uh, an amazing guest today, um, we are in the midst of, of COVID, as all of us are experiencing, and so uh, my guest is virtual, I am virtual, we're, I guess we're real people, but uh, we're distance, uh, and our recording is from a distance, and so uh, bear with us as we uh, work through this. Um, I think all of us in the healthcare industry and in compliance are probably, this is old hat now, getting used to um, new ways of, of communicating, but we are so, so great where we can have uh, Brian Burton as our guest today. He is the Chief Compliance and Privacy Officer for Healthicity. Uh, and so we're excited to talk to him a little bit. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, CJ. How are you today? Doing great. And uh, Brian, I believe, is joining us from the great state of Tennessee. Um, and I am in the Salt Lake City area. Um, and Brian, one thing that we, we like to do is we like to let our guests uh, introduce themselves a little bit and not just you know, what you're doing right now in compliance, but we all kind of come to compliance as a career in different paths. And I know you have a really interesting path. Um, and I would love to hear a little bit about how you've gotten involved in compliance, maybe even your your professional experience just before compliance too. Um, and, and take a few minutes to share a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks, CJ. You know, for me personally, it was a, it was a childhood dream to join the military and I was able to do that immediately out of high school. Um, I was in the U.S. Army, as, and my MOS was a 31 Foxtrot, uh, which meant I worked on um, a global tactical and secure telecommunications network. And that's where I really learned um, a lot of, uh, uh, learned a lot about technology. And, and back in that day, you know, we were still using ThinNet. Ethernet was not widely widely used across uh, across the network topology. But you know, that branched for me. That branched into a, a civilian career in telecommunications. Uh, I was on the cutting edge of voice over IP uh, in the late '90s. Um, then, through some experiences, I was able to transition to a healthcare organization as an IT expert. Uh, it worked on. Uh, EMR implementations, infrastructure upgrades, worked on some construction projects, building infrastructure, building new hospitals and the IT infrastructure associated with it. And that really led me into project management and where I'm currently a, a PMP through the Project Management Institute. Uh, I maintain that certification and, and love that organization. It, it's a tremendous, uh, it's a tremendous organization with a, with a lot of value. Yes, um, really it is. And then from there, I, I, I moved into um, managing more software projects. And, okay. and it, I guess in about 2009, I started working with, uh, with the chief compliance officer to implement a, uh, a payment system for physicians. Okay. Uh, and so where we monitored 
all of the payments to every every potential referral source. So not only the physicians, but also their family members. Uh, and, and we created this check and balance through a logical database to make sure that all of those payments to potential referral sources were, were accurate. And coming out of that project, the chief compliance officer there uh, offered me a position within the compliance department. And so I really came from a technology slash project management background. Okay. And had this great opportunity to transition into compliance. A couple of years later, you know, I worked on some, some compliance projects, implementing controls and procedures, uh, managing the compliance program. And then a couple of years into, into the managing some projects, uh, I ended up as a director of corporate compliance, managing 15 hospitals or so across seven different states. Wow. That's so great. First of all, thank you for your service. Um, and um, I think, you know, it's, I'd love to hear more kind of how that uh, military background, uh, you know, what skills you learned that might be unique that, you know, that the, somebody who is coming from a technology background otherwise, but didn't have that military experience, that would, that would be kind of interesting. But I also find it really interesting that you have this technology background that led you to compliance. You know, a lot of people in compliance, you know, there's never one path. We all know that. But um, I've seen some trends, and the trends are usually legal. Somebody, you know, you come from a legal background, you come from like an internal auditing background, or you might come from a clinical background. Um, and H-I-M. I, yeah, HIM, coding. And I think it's awesome that you're coming from a strong technology background because that is really where compliance is going, right? Um, mm-hmm. Healthcare is going in that direction. You mentioned EMRs. You mentioned, um, you know, the importance of security. You know, in our lives in general are becoming more, um, uh, you know, electronic. <laughs> and so um, healthcare is going to go in that direction too. So having that strong, you know, kind of security background, that, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it, it's been it's been really helpful um, understanding the concepts of technology. Just the, the simple things like you know how data is stored and on what type of the various types of mediums, everything right. from from virtual sands to hardware sands, and you know the virtualization that takes place in in the cloud environment. There are you know Google, right. Microsoft, Amazon. They all have these huge cloud environments. But it's still break, you know, when you break it down to the fundamental components, you still have an internet service connection. You still have servers that process the web servers that process the and handles the data request, and you still have hard drives that store data. Exactly. Um, and in, in protecting that and setting up an infrastructure that is secure um, is instrumental to to what we do in healthcare and healthcare compliance. Yeah, and I, you know, I come from more of a, a clinical background. I appreciate the technology. I in no in in no way am I an expert there, so I'm really glad that uh, folks like yourself are you know have this uh, you know background in technology and project management, right? Like compliance, a lot of compliance is managing people and managing projects. And though you don't have to be the content expert as a chief compliance officer all the time uh, or the subject matter expert, you have to be able to manage that project or manage that that issue right from start to finish. So that's probably a great skill that you recognized as well. Would you say so? Yeah, you're so right. I mean, it's so um, interesting for me to see how often I go back to those fundamentals 
right. um, of project management, the five phases of project management. You know, you initiate a project, plan, monitor, con- uh, execute, monitor, control, and close. You, you'd yeah. be surprised at how often those concepts and the tools and techniques used in professional project management and how that applies to your everyday work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even those things apply, you know, to projects at home, right? Like the, those, some of those principles are good for personal uh, development as well as professional. So that's great. Well, um, you know, one of the things that I think we wanted to talk about today because of your expertise in technology um, is, you know, uh, security risk assessments for HIPAA and and Mm -hmm. breach risk assessments, how they differ. But maybe we could start just by getting your sense and what's your feeling of the current state of compliance programs, understanding the importance of HIPAA security, you know, risk assessments. You know, I'm still, even though we're in COVID and and some things have been loose, some of the regs have been loosened a little bit, or there may be waivers. You know, OCR is still publishing um, enforcement and settlement uh, press releases, and they almost always talk about how the entity failed to do an appropriate HIPAA security risk assessment. Yeah, uh, what's your take on that in general? Well, it, you know, the law requires that that every covered entity and business associate who manages and stores PHI um, that you conduct an annual risk assessment. Um, yeah. I think a lot of organizations struggle with what does that mean and how can I accomplish this this activity with the minimum amount of effort but know, but still know that it's accurate and that your organization is protected from cybersecurity threats. Right. Um, and and other, uh, other types of breaches that might uh, pr- produce risks to your organization. Uh, and for me, you know, the annual security risk assessment, there's a great tool from the OCR. Um, they yep. have a, a client-based tool. Um, we here at Houseicity, we have a great tool for managing security risk assessments. And, right. and then there are paper-based solutions that you can get from various sources on the internet. Uh, for me, I think going through each of the safeguards, the administrative, technical, and physical safeguards, having those common, that common control framework in place in your organization, the appropriate policies, the demonstrable evidence that you're protecting EPHI. Uh, right. those, are, those are sound principles. And, and the most important component is to document what you found. Um, it, I don't think, in my experience, I don't think the OCR is looking for perfection. They're looking yeah. for effort and looking, looking to organizations to make sure you have the appropriate controls in place and you're making a thoughtful approach to protecting the EPHI that you have stored in your systems. Yeah, that, that's, I, I agree with you. You know, I think um, OCR is that way, right? And, um, and, and in all of compliance, you know, even in other areas where I've spent time in compliance, mm-hmm. is the government never expects perfection, but they want to see effort. So that's a great way to put it. You know, you mentioned the ATP, right? The administrative, the technical, and the physical. You know, I see, you know, as I've done reviews and you're probably doing reviews and work um, across the country with clients, a variety of things that people fail to do. But do you see any any trends? Like I know just about anything can happen, right? But do you see trends that people tend to miss? Is it more administrative that they miss, more technical that they miss, more physical? Uh, what, What do you see as kind of some some big ticket items that 
are most commonly missed. If if you even feel like you know that could be uh, well, 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 uh, discussed, sure. But without without speaking of any specific instances or or scenarios, um, I think the the most common breakdown is communication, and that okay. that communication between you know the privacy official at the organization and the IT resources. And gotcha. understanding how how those two responsible parties, what the, identifying their their responsibilities, what they're accountable for, and then creating co- good clear communication between the two groups, so that they're protecting the organization. Um, far too often, it, you know, we find that um, that IT doesn't understand the business, and the right. business doesn't under, understand IT, and right. finding the right people to help bridge those gaps are, are crucial when you're talking about completing something as important as the annual security risk assessment. Um, yeah, because, it, you know, you're really, you're really calling on a lot of different leaders, right? It's typically not, Oh, let's just give it to compliance or let's just give it to one person to do right. Mm-hmm. You're you, like you said, there's privacy officers, security officers, it uh, experts, and sometimes they don't all speak the same language, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and another thing is, you know, choosing which cybersecurity framework to implement. Um, it, you know, there are six or seven different frameworks that are available in, in, here in the U.S. You have everything from the ISO standard to yep. uh, NIST. You have um, uh, High Trust, SOC, all of these different frameworks that, that organizations have to choose from. And, and picking one of those standards and then making that your common uh, language within your organization is crucial to success. What that's a really great point. You know what? How would you uh, recommend or advise people on which framework to pick? Sometimes it's probably mandated. Maybe I don't know. But well, um, or do you have thoughts on that? If so, if there's a compliance officer listening to this, they're like, I don't know what our framework is. What What would your <laughs> advice be? <laughs> Well, have a good have a good thoughtful conversation with your IT department, whether that be your CIO or your or your chief information security officer. Um, have a thoughtful conversation about the framework and the and the principles used um, to okay for cybersecurity. Um, to to throw my hat out there and say you know I like this framework better than this one. I think it. I think that depends on your organization. It okay. depends on where you are. Um, in in your technology maturity, uh, how much PHI you have, um, and and where and how you plan to protect it, and whether or not you're a, an on-premise data center and you manage that physical data center yourself, or if you've got uh, you're all virtual or cloud-based, or you have some combination of the two. Um, you know, there, the various frameworks are designed. Um, it, to help organizations standardize their security uh, profile. Um, okay. There's not a, in my opinion, there's not a better one than the other, but it's more about which one's going to help you communicate with your business better. Okay. So it's really important to, for the people, the decision makers who are going to kind of decide on a framework to, number one, know their organization well enough and know the, the different choices well enough, the, the different frameworks so that, they could say what might be a good fit and what might work well with our, our culture, our vision. Is, is that a fair statement? It is. You know, in the, the frameworks themselves, the the underlying principles are, are very similar. Some of them okay, have different right. terminologies, uh, but the, the, the basics of blocking and tackling, for example, are essentially right. the same. 
Um, it just depends on where you are and what, what, what resources within your, your organization, what they're most comfortable with and what fits your technology. Right. Okay. Good. Well, anything else on kind of the annual HIPAA uh, security risk assessment that you might want to talk about before we maybe move to uh, a, a related topic? It, no, I think, uh, you know, communication is key. Build a strong relationship with your with your CIO, your C, uh, your chief information security officer. And if you need help, reach out to us. Um, you know, if you need help navigating those complexities, we have a team of resources here that are, help, are here to help you. Great. Excellent. You know, one of the other things that we kind of were chatting about before we started um, was talking about a data breach uh, risk assessment mm-hmm. and how that might differ. You know, there's, you know, as compliance officers, some of us are generalists and we understand the importance of HIPAA security and those sorts of things. But you you seem to have some some good insights on what are these differences and, and, and how should we talk about those differences between a HIPAA security risk assessment and a data breach risk yeah, assessment? Yeah, I, I think in my experience, I, you know, our, our profession of compliance uh, is growing um, faster than we can keep up with. And we have new people joining the profession on a monthly or, or even daily basis. Um, and I, I, in my experience, I've seen a lot of people confuse the two between security risk assessment and a data breach risk assessment. And of course, for those of you who are listening, um, who are privacy officers, you're intimately familiar with what, with those differences. Um, and a data breach risk assessment being, you know, how does an organization evaluate the risk associated with a breach or potential breach? And, and we all know that that's based on the four factors um, as defined in HIPAA. But there are so many people out there that confuse the two, and they're different. Um, you know, that security risk assessment or HIPAA security risk assessment is conducted annually, and it's intended to assess the risk of your organization's cybersecurity program. Um, where a data breach risk assessment, you know, for those of you who are participating in large health systems, you may be doing a dozen of those a week, maybe more. Um, and because you have to complete a data breach risk assessment for every instance where PHI may have been compromised. And we're all sourcing and looking for that low probability reading and there's and determining whether or not there is a risk and whether or not you have to notify the patient. And in some certain cases, depending on the volume of, of patients right. who are affected, we may have to notify the OCR either annually or immediately. Right. Um, it, so I think, you know, for new, for new people to the profession, those can be confusing. And for those of us who have done it for a while, it's very clear and bright. Um, but we still, I still see IT resources confuse the two, and and not understanding that you know that we're doing data breach risk assessments frequently. Right. Yeah. Well, and even as you were talking, I was thinking, well, and even mes- messaging up, right? So if you're the chief compliance officer and you have to give messages up to an executive compliance committee or to you know executive leadership, they might not know. The difference when you're talking about it, and so, you know, in hearing you, you, you keep me honest here, and, and if what I summarize here, if, if this is what you agree with, it's kind of like a HIPAA security risk assessment is almost a proactive activity. You schedule it, um, and you're assessing your organization's preparedness and mitigation efforts for the overall kind of environment of of security to PHI 
whereas a data breach risk assessment is incident-based, meaning it's based off of you know somebody calling or you identifying that oh we left the door open here or we you know we did x y and z and so it's it's specific to the details surrounding that incident and you're assessing whether that particular incident um, uh, reaches certain thresholds that then require you to do additional actions of either reporting to OCR or to the local media and those sorts of things. Is that a, is that a fair summary? Yeah, very well said. Um, you couldn't have said it better. Uh, the security risk assessments are proactive approach to managing your cybersecurity framework and your, or your cybersecurity profile. Um, and then data breach risk assessments are occurrence-based. They're when gotcha. you have, uh, when an employee or a member of your workforce has or suspects a breach of PHI. Um, and Yeah, I mean, that could be a lost laptop or a lost flash drive or, um, you know, a website that is misdirected, open. Misdirected email. Um, yeah. Or, or worst case, you know, you have somebody who's penetrated your cybersecurity network and yes. exfiltrated data from your systems to somewhere else, or they've compromised your security. And, you know, we see a lot of this in the news now, um, you know, where they're encrypting your data and then holding it hostage or ransom or for a ransom. Ransom. Um, and so, you know, ransomware. All of those things in in every instance of those occurrences, it's it's on it's the responsibility of the privacy official to conduct that data breach risk assessment. Gotcha. So on that ransomware topic, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I've heard this at a lot of conferences and in talking to other people um, smarter than me. They they often I often hear this phrase: uh, a ransomware is a presu- a presumed breach. Is that a true statement? What do they mean by that? Or have you heard that before? I have, and, and I agree with it. Um, okay. What you does know, that mean? So when you're per, you have compromised the security of of that PHI. So if uh, if a bad actor has infiltrated your network through through some means of a phishing attempt, um, and one of your workforce members has uh, downloaded a a, a, a link that was able to install software or unapproved software on your on on a device within your network it's your data has been compromised at that point yep. and it takes a real forensic analysis to understand what was exfiltrated if anything and so there's okay. a pretty big case um, if 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 we were to look at um, there was a, a large health system that was had some ransomware and it took months and months in the cooperation with the FBI to to conclude that it was a true ransomware where they had tried to encrypt but had not exfiltrated any data. Okay. Um, and that all all of those tiny little details, whether they be tiny or or major, all of those facts um, factor into your data breach risk assessment. And so it okay. goes, you know, to the extent in which the uh, it, which you were able to mitigate or whether or not the unauthorized person um, was actually able to view or obtain the PHI. So it's possible that you could start the scenario with ransomware, ransom attack being a presumed breach, but after you do your analysis, your data breach uh, risk analysis, is it possible that it turns out that it doesn't meet the actual definition of a breach? Well, that's a tricky question, CJ. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah. I, it, it, is it possible? Yes. Um, but not likely. <laughs> but, but unlikely, because you, you have to presume that a person, a bad actor in this case, implemented some ransomware. And whether or not that PHI was compromised, it really takes a fine-tooth comb and a, and a true forensic analysis uh, of, okay. of all the data to understand what was accessed, what, what, what if anything was exfiltrated from the network. Okay. Um, but you still have to consider access is, is still a breach, right? It, right. You don't have That's to right. move. You, you, PHI does not have to move from one hard drive to another for there to be a breach. That's um, right. If you or I view someone's medical record that we're not uh, responsible for and provide yep. care or have some other business need to access, you know, that's a breach. That's um, right. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, and maybe this might be a little bit related to the data breach risk assessment that you've referenced. I often hear people talk about low PROCO, which I believe stands for low probability of compromise. That's a part of of the analytic assessment, right? When you're it doing is. breach risk assessment. Can you comment on what that is and, and how that's important? Yeah, I, sure. And so I think, you know, one of the one of the greatest benefits of, of the way the uh, the breach risk assessment is written is you still have to apply some um, qualitative analysis. And there's and unless you have some you know super forensic um, detail in, in your network diag- or in your network analysis, um, there's still some subjectivity to that qualitative analysis and whether or not there was a low probability of a compromise. Um, and whether or not the individual who may or may not have accessed uh, further disclosed the information. Uh, And that can be, you you can make that as complicated as someone who, a cyber attack, who's compromised your network, or you simply have a misdirected fax or email, and the recipient sends an attestation confirming, you know, sends an attestation back to the covered entity, uh, attesting to they did not view and did not further disclose. And that yes. all of those things factor into whether or not you ultimately conclude that there was a low probability of compromise. Gotcha. And if there is a low probability of compromise, it's it's possible that you then don't categorize the incident or the occurrence as a breach that needs to be reported to OCR. Is that accurate? Correct. And as my as my favorite attorney says, there's there's no harm or foul in reporting to the OCR or the patient that there may have been a breach. Okay. Um, but uh, you, you know those each of the each scenario needs to be weighed carefully by a qualified professional. Gotcha. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, we could talk all day. We're we're getting kind of towards the end of our time. Um, obviously, this is a, a really important topic. I want to give you a few minutes at the end here. If there's any question I maybe didn't ask, or if there's some point that uh, that we haven't made yet, kind of about either HIPAA security risk assessments or data breach risk assessments, the difference between the two, any kind of parting thoughts that you might have? Communicate, um, communicate, communicate, communicate. Um, it, learn as much as you can. Study, uh, study. Uh, other examples. Uh, there's plenty of information out there on the OCR website where you can look at uh, corrective action plans. Uh, right. Study the details of what has happened um, to your professional peers, uh, and then take those stories back to your team 
and and use those as the catalyst to communicate. Whether you're the the CISO listening to this today, or the privacy per, uh, the privacy uh, officer at your organization, or maybe you're the chief compliance officer, pull right. those pull those team members together. Um, use one of those corrective action plans um, that are public knowledge, and and use that as the catalyst for a conversation with your key team key team members. I think I, you know, and I think that's a practice that we should do in all areas of compliance, not just this area, yep. right? Like I was Absolutely. just reading, I was reading the one in OCR about the city of New Haven. They have a a, a public health clinic, um, and they had discharged or, or separated or fired or. A, an employee left employment there, but they didn't turn off that employee's access to, um, you know, that they had when they were an employee, it was fine for them to have access. But now that they're no longer an employee, you need to terminate that access immediately. And it, it didn't get terminated for like eight days later. The employee came back, was able to download some EPHI and those sorts of things. To me, that's a good story to take. And not a good story, but it's a it's a story to take from OCR's website and then to maybe talk about and say, okay, this probably falls under our administrative uh, policies, right? Do we have a policy? Do we have a procedure in place that when we're anticipating separating somebody from the institution that we get IT on the phone and say, look, we're telling them at 12 o'clock today, we need you to, you know, to sub, to uh, disengage their access at 11.59 or something like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, it's funny you said that. I just had a conversation with, uh, with, with a group of people um, earlier this week talking about this very point. And the question was, you know, can we give a 24-hour buffer for terminating access? And my, my advice is no. Um, if you know you're separating employment with someone who has access to EPHI, we should be coordinating with the privacy official, the HR, right. and the manager, and that should be coordinated, and and the access should be terminated prior to the conversation with the employee you're separating. Yeah, and and that should be written down in a policy and procedure. Absolutely. I mean, that to me isn't that kind of what part of those administrative safeguards yep. are for? Absolutely. Is that you have you you have it already written down and. And it's not a surprise to anybody. Look, we terminate people all the time. Some people leave voluntarily. It doesn't matter the reason, but if they're no longer a part of the organization, their access needs to be terminated. So, yeah, exactly. yeah. And that was a, that was an interesting one that came up uh, on OCR's website. So I'm looking at those types of things too. So I, I appreciate you saying that about communicating and kind of using those stories and, and settlements as kind of a, a, a springboard for conversations within your organization. Yeah. CJ, this has been fun. I really appreciate it. Um, it it's great. Maybe we can do this again in a couple months or a few months and, uh, and Absolutely. have a great conversation maybe on a different topic. Yeah. Well, you're, you're a wealth of information. I appreciate your expertise and your experience. Uh, and thank you for joining us. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Compliance Conversations. Uh, until next time, take care. Thank you. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com.